continue in our you know, kind of journey through the book of Acts, we've, we've seen these, again, these, these consistent themes, this idea of obedience to God's word, a witness to what the Spirit and what Christ has, has done. And the witness, no matter what the situation, no matter what, what comes their way. But there's also this other theme it's not really a theme, it's really the whole direction of the book of Acts, which is the, the expansion of the influence of the gospel. And one thing I hope that you, you pick up here, and, and it, we, we miss this sometimes, and we were talking about it on Wednesday night, uh, when we were talking about uh, Paul's background, and we're talking about the, the time that, that you know, took place between um, just two verses, and it could have been three years, it could have been up to 14 years, but just between two verses. And we need to remind ourselves of this because I think sometimes um, we, we get really impatient. Uh, we, we expect God to do these, these miraculous things, and when you do something miraculous, at least according to our definition of miraculous, it's supposed to be instantaneous. It's supposed to be right then in that moment. Otherwise, it doesn't qualify as a miracle. But what we find here is miraculous. It's the Holy Spirit getting a hold of about 120 people who have no real power, no real influence in the world, and, and rapidly, in some sense, they are they're developing, they're growing. But in another sense, it's taking time. It's not a sprint. They didn't, they didn't sprint out of Jerusalem. They didn't go, well, Jesus said we would go from Jerusalem to Judea. They didn't start planning like, okay, let's start sending teams out to Judea and Samaria. No. These things are being unfolded. And, and why are they being unfolded? Why is it, this, is, is it taking time? What's, you know, what's going on? You know, is God not powerful enough? Well, it's one of the things that we've talked about before here, and I think it's something that we forget. That even in Scripture, even 2,000 years ago, even before that, in the history of Israel, God does not typically do supernatural, miraculous things the way we think they should be done. That's the exception. The healings are the exceptions. The parting of the Red Sea is the exception. It's not the rule. Because if that was the rule, why did God even bother to part the Red Sea? Why didn't he just magically transport everybody from Egypt to Israel? Would have been much simpler. But for whatever reason, and I believe God has a really good reason that I'm not gonna unpack for you today, but for whatever reason, what we find happening in scripture much more is that God works through his people. And if he's gonna work through his people, it's going to be miraculous because to get us to do anything the right way for the right reasons, believe me, it's a miracle. 
but it's also going to take time. It's going to take time. You all experienced this when you had, when you had, you know, if you have children and you raise your children and you wanted them to learn and grow and be involved, you know, you could bake a cake much faster without their little hands helping. You could fix your car, do your lawn much faster without them. But you took the time. You knew it would take more time. In fact, you knew it would be messier, but you did it anyways. For whatever reason, God takes the time to work with us and through us. And so we find that happening, even though we've read nine chapters, just a few pages, a lot of time has passed. But one of the things that we're finding is we're finding more and more pushback as as the church grows, as Christianity grows, you know, they're not over there trying to take over the world. They're not over there trying to get people elected into office. They're simply living their lives. And if they're doing anything offensive, it's that they're going out and they're telling other people about Jesus. That's it. But for whatever reason, the world perceives that as a threat. So much so that they think these people need to be silenced, eliminated. And it's something that was true 2,000 years ago, it's true thousands of years before that, it's still true today. That there's many people, in fact I would say the majority of people in the world would rather be enslaved to sin than have new life in Christ. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Some of them not so good on us. Maybe we haven't really shown them what new life in Christ looks like. And they haven't really seen the benefits of new life in Christ. Perhaps that's the reason. But I think for those who, who actually are understanding and engaging and and see what Christ has to offer that the reason they would rather be enslaved to sin is because because it's familiar it's it's comfortable it you know they may not really love it but they're more afraid of the unknown they're more afraid of taking a risk than to stay with something safe even though it's harmful. I think others are, are, they're just addicted. They're addicted to to the pleasure. They're addicted to the escapism that comes from, from being enslaved to sin because that's part of the reason sin has such a hold on us. Because it can give us some kind of temporary escape. It can give us some kind of temporary sense of accomplishment or peace or joy that doesn't last but we become addicted to that. We've talked about one of the great problems in our modern society is that people are addicted to happiness. They just run from one happy to another happy to another happy. And how they get their happiness, well, it doesn't matter. But they're addicted to happiness. And happiness is one of the cruelest masters we can have. Some people, they, they, 
you know, they, they, they see their lives and they're bitter and they're angry and they're, you know, upset with the whole world. And they, they, they know what new life in Christ offers, but they want to hold on to the bitterness and anger because it gives them a sense of power. You know, it, it's, it's one of the things we do is, you know, in every, if you ever go read political cartoons from, you know, 200 years ago, you know Americans have had a proud tradition of doing this, where we like to complain against our elected officials. It gives us a sense of power. We can't possibly be happy with anything. And so whether we're addicted to happiness or addicted to bitterness, doesn't matter. Because we know new life in Christ threatens all of that. And so we find as the gospel is spreading, the persecution will get greater. And so when we read today, we're following up from last week, the first half of chapter 9, incredible, miraculous, supernatural conversion of Paul, the church's fiercest persecutor. And all of a sudden he becomes a Christian. And we pick it up in the last part of verse 19 where it says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not, not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What we see here is we see partly this, this incredible account of the genuine conversion of Saul, who we will later come to know as the Apostle Paul. And what is the evidence? The evidence is that, that in just a really short amount of time, he's out and he's telling other people about Jesus. Now, he had an advantage that a lot of us didn't have when we became Christians. He had spent all of his years, most of his life, studying the Hebrew Scriptures. 
but when he encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, it all suddenly makes sense to him in a way that it never had before. But make no mistake, part of the reason he's out is not just because he has all this, this, this knowledge of, of Scripture, but it's because of what, what he has already experienced in Jesus Christ and what he's already experienced in the other followers of Christ who are, who are ministering to him and loving him and taking care of him. We find that he's devoted to the word. He's, when it says he's proving Jesus Christ to these other Jewish people, he's, he's not you know, coming up with some kind of philosophical argument. He's, if he's proving it to other Jewish people, he's using scripture to do it. He's persecuted. And you gotta think like early on in, in, his, in his Christian life, if it's not a genuine conversion, really early on when he starts to get pushback from others, it would have been really easy for him to just say, all right, change my mind. I switched teams once, I'm gonna switch back. Um, you know, one thing I learned about these Christians, at least they won't try to kill me. But no. He continues. And even in verse 26, it's even more remarkable that when he goes to Jerusalem and he goes to the Jerusalem church, they're afraid of him. They don't really believe he's been converted. And you can just imagine someone who's not really converted, someone who doesn't really have the Holy Spirit in their lives, someone who hasn't really been changed, getting angry at that and saying, all right, you don't want to accept me? You think I'm still the enemy? Well, I'm going to prove to you I'm the enemy. So many opportunities for this young, new believer to just go in the opposite direction. But he doesn't do it. And the only explanation is that he has this genuine, life-changing experience with Christ. He's not trying this new Jesus thing. You know, that was kind of the thing that some people would say. They'd be like, hey, um, let's, let's, you know, why don't we try Christianity? You can't try Christianity. You either fully accept Christianity, you fully accept the gospel, and it is, it is forever life-changing, or you don't. People who think they're going to dip their toe in the water of Christianity, they are not ever going to experience Christianity. Christianity is, it's about surrender. It's about giving, calling Jesus Lord, not, hey, Jesus, let's try out that Lord title, but it's going to be on a short-term contract, maybe like three months, and then we may renew after three months. No. And we see that, that Saul has this immediate, radical transformation. And it goes back to what we talked about last week, that when he's confronted by Jesus and Jesus says, I am, that changes everything. True faith in Jesus Christ changes everything. We, we talked about you know, this, this last week about 
as Christians, we need to encounter Jesus. And how do we know we've encountered Jesus? Well, there has been significant change. And I'm not just talking about changes in our actions, in our, in our you know, in, in what we do. But it's change in, in who we are. You know, one of the favorite questions that people like to ask is, you know, when we're in heaven, do we get to retain our identity? My thought to you is, what makes you so special that you want that to last forever, right? I mean, but, that, but that's how we think, because we're so caught up in ourselves. Like, we're so good, we're so great, we're so special. Yeah, I, I want to uh, become a Christian, but I want to keep as much of me as possible. Now, don't get lost on that identity question and all that, okay? I just brought that up just to make a point, all right? We can talk about that later. But what we should understand is that true faith in Jesus Christ, it changes everything about who we are, changes our values. It changes even our hopes and our dreams. It changes how we feel about other people, what we hope for them. And for Paul, it's rapid, it's dramatic. But what's funny is he's still Paul. He didn't forget all the Hebrew scriptures. Paul was kind of a, he was kind of a rebel, even as a Pharisee. He was, he was going against his own teacher. His own teacher said, hey, hey, all you guys, let's just play it cool. He said, let those Christians do their thing, because you know what? We've seen people like this come and go, and they, you know, they're going to they're gonna fall away, or... Or perhaps Jesus really is the Messiah and they really do have God behind them. If that's the case, why would we stand in their way? That was Paul's teacher. You know what Paul said to his teacher after that? I don't know what he said. I only know what he did. He said, let's go hunt down some Christians. His teacher is saying, let it happen, let it play out. Saul's like, no, let's go hunt them down. And as a matter of fact, let's not just stay in Jerusalem, let's go find them wherever they are. He's still zealous, but now he's zealous for Jesus. He's not like zealous, full of hatred and bitterness and anger what we find pouring out of Paul's life and we see it in so many of his letters is this incredible love. He, he loves his fellow Jewish people, his fellow, fellow Jewish people so much that he will later write, if I could, I would give up my salvation for their salvation. He never hates them. Radically changed. And some of you, you connect with Paul. You connect with him. You know what you were before you were a Christian. You know how you thought. You know how so much you had that, maybe you had that kind of hidden humility, uh, hidden pride. 
you know, things, you did a lot of things just for yourself. Even if people thought of you better than that. Some of you weren't so good at hiding it. Everybody knew you were selfish. You lived your own way. You did whatever you did. You, you're, you're full of, you know, whether it was anger or bitterness or hopelessness, despair, whatever it was, that dominated your life. And then Jesus Christ came and changed overnight. Some of you walked, you know, you walked around with guilt all the time. And when you came to Christ, it was gone. But not everyone is that way. I believe true faith in Jesus Christ changes everything, but again, it doesn't necessarily happen for everybody in an instant. In fact, we know even Paul later on will write about him, he himself, still struggling with certain things in his own life. It's not that way for everyone. For a lot of people, when they come to true faith in Jesus Christ, oh, everything's changed, but it takes a while for it to kind of work its way out. It takes time. It's bit by bit. What we see, why doesn't God make, make this plan a sprint? Why doesn't he, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit also drops off a PowerPoint presentation of how to reach the world in the next 120 days? Because they weren't ready. Everything changes. But sometimes we're not ready for the change. But as we grow in our faith, as we spend more time in his word, as we spend more time with his people, as we, as we learn and God's spirit changes us, we get ready and we start to understand all of those things that had already been changed. Changes everything. And when you start to think about the things that, that change, you know, people who live this life just kind of full of sadness and sorrow, regardless of whether it's for people that they've lost or for their own situation, how they feel about themselves, about just looking at the world and being depressed by it, true faith in Jesus Christ promises to take the sorrow and turn it into joy. In a world that where so many people are, are just living without purpose, or they've accepted a purpose that's, that's very just, it's, it's a purpose, but it's small. And it's a purpose that they pretty much created, which means they can get rid of it whenever they want. True faith in Jesus Christ brings new purpose. And what this new purpose is, is, is that it's positive, it's not negative. It's about building up, it's not about tearing down. It's about bringing love and hope to the world, not about bringing hatred. It's not destructive. 
It's there to help and heal. Sometimes summarize this up with, it's the kingdom. It's living for the kingdom, advancing the kingdom. If you can't get excited about that purpose, I don't know what, what's wrong. If, if you think that all that you have that you're holding on to that prevents you from becoming more and more a part of that purpose, I don't know what to tell you. This isn't a purpose that's just about me. It's not a purpose that's just about me and my family or me and my family and the people that I love. It's a purpose that has, has a global dimension to it. It's for all time, and it's for everywhere. When you be, have true faith in Jesus Christ, you understand that purpose. And that purpose gives you purpose. It, you, you, you always have a reason to keep learning and keep growing and keep serving and keep trying. There's never a reason to give up. You can be guaranteed that until your very last breath, God has a purpose, even then. It's not just getting by. It's hope. And it's, it's love and joy and hope that's founded in the right person, not in the things that the world says you can find all this happiness and love in. True faith in Jesus Christ changes everything. Saul, he knew who he was. And, and he couldn't necessarily see that there, he could be anyone else. And get this, he thought he was being righteous, but he was being righteous without a heart full of love. And let me just make sure you understand this. That is not God's righteousness. You cannot be righteous or be working for righteousness or defending righteousness if you don't do it from a heart that's been transformed by God's love. All of a sudden, when that happens, everything changes for Saul. Oh, he still cares about righteousness. You can read in 1 Corinthians 15 how much he cares about righteousness. But he understands what he'd been missing. And everything changed. And everything changes for the better. Not the better according to my definition or your definition or the world's definition, but for the better because now he knows that no matter what happens in his life, and we know what's gonna happen in his life. He was even told, Ananias was told, this guy's gonna suffer. And we know it. We know he's gonna be you know, almost killed a couple times. We know he's gonna be thrown in prison. We know he's gonna be shipwrecked. We know he's gonna be chased by mobs. We know all of this is happening. 
Not to mention kind of the personal tragedy that we don't see. It's widely believed that as a Pharisee that Saul was married, we never hear about his wife or his family. We never hear about his, his, his parents. It's totally cut off. Cut off from all that he knew. But he's, he has hope and he has joy and he's out there working just as hard as he was to persecute people. Now he's working just as hard to love them, to share the gospel, to encourage the saints. The second thing we see here in this text is that God works through his people. I talked about this at the beginning, but I wanted us to see this again, that we, we had this, this miraculous, this light, this voice from heaven, okay, got, got Saul's attention. Later on, we get Ananias having a vision, saying, hey, you know that guy that's been murdering all your friends? I want you to go pay him a visit. And then Saul has a vision. Other than that, what's happening? Well, when he's knocked down, blinded on the road to Damascus, the text doesn't say, and God magically transported him to a house in Damascus. No, it says he has to be helped up and led by his companions to Damascus. When he gets there, he's not just sitting in a room and then all of a sudden that same voice that talked to him on the road, why didn't that same voice just say, okay, Saul, now that we're here in this room, let's talk. No. Ananias comes. God uses Ananias. We see here in verse 19, he's there with, with disciples. The other disciples are there, and they're, they're helping him. Later on, when, when he's threatened and the, the, the Jewish leaders in, in Damascus are plotting to kill him, God doesn't put a magic force field around him. He doesn't magically transport him out of Damascus to some safe place. No, he gets let down through like a window, an opening in the wall, in a basket. I mean, come on, God. Couldn't he have just jumped from the wall and then you could have like let him kind of like glide to safety? That would have been so much cooler. No, he uses people. And there's those guys, you know, with a rope and a basket probably lowering him down. They're probably happy that he hadn't eaten for three days because he's probably lighter. But nevertheless, this is human beings doing what God is having them do. Later on, the, the Christians in Jerusalem, they're afraid of him and they have right to be because they have a right to not just to be afraid of him, they have a right to hate him. Later on, it'll tell us that, that when, when, when the Christians were being rounded up in Jerusalem, whenever the religious leaders voted whether some of them should be put to death, that Saul always voted yes, kill them. 
He wasn't only responsible for arresting them, he was responsible for the death. There's a reason they're afraid of him. But notice, there's no vision that appears to the disciples. Instead, Barnabas. Barnabas goes. Barnabas is the one God uses people. Again and again and again, we see this in Scripture. God works through his people. Saul goes and he preaches in the synagogues. We don't have any more accounts of bright lights from heaven. That's it, that one. He uses his people. And I think this is, again, something I think we forget so many times. We're, we're waiting for something to happen. We're waiting for God to do something. We're waiting for him to bring something here, someone here. We're waiting for, that, for that, that program or that book or that, you know, some way that, that something can happen here. And you know what? Yeah, those things, they have, they have their uses. But why are we waiting? If we are God's people and God works through his people, that would mean he's working through us. That would mean he's working through you and he's working through me and he's working through all of us collectively. But for some reason we think that, that there's the stuff I do and then there's the stuff God does. When we're in Christ and Christ is in us, it's what Christ does through us. If we're going to wait for someone to, to do the work of God, if we're going to wait for God to do something miraculously, we're going to wait a long time. God works through his people. And we saw in this story, he didn't work through all of them in the same way. For some of them, he worked through them by they just had a basket and a rope. Others, they spent a lot of time with, with Paul and encouraged him. Others, as we're going to talk about in a minute, stood up for him. And that's disappointing to some Christians. Some Christians only want to keep coming back if we can do more dazzling shows for you. If we can put on something more impressive and then that's going to keep me coming back. If God will promise to do some supernatural thing every week that we all can see, then we'll keep coming back. I mean, if every week you know, I just came up here and there was just an empty pot here. And then I said, God, bring the altar flowers. And they all grew magically. People would come. They'd come. And then, and then if I actually claimed that in one of them you could see the face of Jesus, even more people would come. Right? Because they want to see, yeah, oh, every week they'd be waiting for that moment. 
They would always see the empty flower pot. They were waiting for that sign. But how different is it from us sitting around waiting for God to do something in the church? One of the things that a lot of you who weren't here when I first came to the church, a lot of you weren't here, some of you were, but one of the things that people kept saying was, you know, we, 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 we need to reach more people. We need to reach different people. The older people, we need to reach younger people. It's like, so how does this happen? Do we just sit here and pray that God will bring people here? God works through his people. If you know what we need, what are you doing to meet that need? Besides just telling the pastor and hoping he has a secret plan. I got no secret plan. I'm going to do the same thing you would do. Bring whatever gifts I have. God, use them. And maybe add to them some that I don't think I have. We see here in that verse 26 that when he does go, and we're not sure which visit this is to Jerusalem. Luke, Luke doesn't tell us how much time has passed. And this is one of those places where it could be years. But we don't really get that timing. But we do get this, that the disciples, the church at Jerusalem, they still don't trust him. They still don't believe him. And what I want you to understand is that what this to me is communicating, it's this, this truth that, that the forgiveness of sin does not erase the consequence of sin. The forgiveness of sin does not erase the consequence of sin. God promises to forgive us our sin, but he doesn't promise to erase the consequences of it. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you know from, you know, maybe prior relationships you had, um, you know, that, that, you know, before you were a Christian or even after you were a Christian where you did, you did so much damage out of selfishness or pride in that relationship that even though you eventually came to grips with it, came to faith in Jesus Christ, knew you were forgiven for all of that, but the consequences remained. Saul, we don't know how long he was persecuting the church. We know it wasn't just for a couple days. We don't know how many lives he just tore apart, how many homes he broke apart, how many dads and moms he had killed, and now their kids are orphans. He don't, we don't know how many widows he created. We don't know. But we do know this, the consequences were real. We do know he was forgiven, but the consequences are still there. I remember talking to, um, he was a former librarian at a school that I worked at, and he, you know, he, he had written a book 
that he, I don't think he ever published, but he written a book on, on how to deal with grief when you're dealing with grief in a very traumatic situation. And in his particular case, it was his, his 21-year-old son had been murdered. And, and, he, and he, he talked about a lot of different things, but when I was interviewing him for a story, you know, he, he told me, he says, some days I forgive the guy who did it, but some days I wake up and I hate him all over again. You know, there was another story of, that I had to deal with, cover when I was working at, at school as a news director. And I, I got to interview this uh, pastor he's a, who had been pastor of a church in, in West Paducah, Kentucky. And those of you who know about that, it's, it's the first, like when, when we talk about school shootings, it was the first one. And it was these, these teenagers that used to gather like for prayer before school in a prayer circle and this guy came in and, and shot some of them. And I never forget what the mother said, one of the mothers of the girls who was killed. And, and she said all these well-meaning Christians were coming in and telling her, oh, you know, you really need to forgive and you need to forgive. And she said, all these Christians talking about forgiveness didn't spend Christmas at the graveyard. This is the problem we have sometimes. This is the problem we have with sin. We think sin is our private sin. We think sin doesn't really have any victims or, or if it does, it's not that bad. We don't see the, the deep consequences of sin and how they not only affect us, but how they affect other people. You don't have to carry the guilt around when we, when we confess our sin to Jesus. To Jesus. God is faithful to forgive us our sins. But it doesn't erase the consequences. And the last point, the last point is we read about Barnabas. Barnabas is introduced here and he'd actually been mentioned a little bit earlier in in, um, earlier chapters. But here we get a little bit more about who he is and Barnabas is well respected in the, in the Christian community. And he's the one who comes and, and brings Paul to, to, um, to the Christians in Jerusalem. And we often talk about Barnabas, but I think we don't give him enough due. And I think one of the reasons Luke gives him the mention here is not just because he's important to to Paul's story, but because he's important to the life of the church. Because if we're going to be his church, we all need, need a Barnabas. But we also need to be a Barnabas. We all need a Barnabas, but we also need to be a Barnabas. We need someone who does more than just pat us on the back. Those are nice, 
it's always good to get a nice card or something and somebody saying, hey, great job, pat on the back. But notice what Barnabas does here. He doesn't just, he doesn't just kind of, you know, wave his approval. It says Barnabas took him. He brought him. He took the lead on this. He said, we need to make this right. He put his own reputation at stake. He took a risk. He stood by this guy. He vouched for him. You do see how that's so much more than, hey, man, praying for you. Hope that situation works out for you. Man, you know, I hope those guys over there will come to their senses and realize what a good dude you are. No. Barnabas gets involved. He, he puts himself on, on the line. And does he know all that's going to happen? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if he knows how important Saul will be to the, to the church. But he does what he does. Wouldn't it be great to have a Barnabas? And you might go, well, you know, I, I don't have any situations like this. Maybe you haven't. And maybe you haven't, you just don't know about it. Maybe there's someone, which is something that a lot of people like to do, and we all hate to have it done to ourselves. We hate when people tell us why we did what we did. Or worse, they don't tell us, they just assume it. Oh, you know, you know why she didn't return my email? Because she's mad at me. You know, we just assume. Or, you know why that person didn't show up to church? You know why? And we always want to say, why, why, why? If we want to be a Barnabas to each other, you know what we do? We stand up for that person who's being attacked. We stand up and we say, you know what? That doesn't really, what you're saying doesn't seem to be consistent with how my sister is or how my brother is. As a matter of fact, if you really feel that, maybe we should all get together and talk about it. You want to shut up gossip in your church? Make it more common for everyone, every time they hear someone talking about someone else and, and saying why someone did what they did, immediately say, hey, why don't we all get together and talk about it? Pretty soon, everybody's going to be talking about you. But that group's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Because the person who just likes to criticize, just likes to assume, they don't want to fix it. They don't want to make it better. We can be a Barnabas. I can't tell you as pastor how many times people come and tell me they know why someone did something. And I will always tell them, I, I, I don't know that that's true. And it's not really consistent with how I've seen this person in the past. I try so hard not to do it. I try so hard that if I walk by you and, you know, that I'm not assuming why you do what you do. 
I've, during this whole COVID thing, people who come, people who don't come, I don't assume I know why you're here or why you're not here. But I will tell you this, if I do assume, I will always assume the best about you. We want to be a Barnabas to each other. We need to know each other and we need to assume the best about each other. We need Barnabases in our church and we need to be Barnabases. In this chapter, the names change, but the gospel still proclaimed. We see this remarkable thing at the end where, where, where Saul is taken off to Tarsus. And at first we think like this is a defeat, but it's not a defeat. It's what had to happen. Saul had become such a lightning rod. It was such a problem that, that the, the persecution was so intense that when he's moved out of the situation, what happens? The church grows. Oh, Saul doesn't just go and hide. He goes and continues to do ministry wherever he goes. But understand that the way this is put together with verse 30 and 31 is saying the church is growing even though probably their best guy is not there with them. And the gospel continues to go out When we know the gospel, when we understand what the gospel is, it transforms who we are. And that that transforms what we do and why we do it. Evangelism should never be I'm right and you're wrong. I'm going to win, you're going to lose. Instead, it should always be this is the good news. The good news, the only hope, the only way that comes through Jesus Christ.